When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like beetroot, toads, or carpets, or like rats, bats, and mats, or hats, cats, and sats. Now, sats, I'm thinking SATs, or SATs being those exams that children take in America, or uh, sitting down. Right, that kind of thing. I'd have to take off an then, so sat. <laughs> Sitting in the past. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of ships is in fact all about accidents, failure, deviant hats, trousers that become dresses and skeletons that change sex? That, that sounds amazing. It does. Uh, um, the man sitting opposite me, he... Thirsts for history like a drowning man thirsts for oxygen. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Are you well today? Very well, thank you. Very good, very good. And the man sitting opposite me is the Gustavus Adolphus of maritime marvels. It's the famous historical adventurer, Mr. History himself, the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. Now, has anyone worked out what we're going to talk about today? I, do, I can't hear you because you're listening probably on your walk or on your bike ride or commuting to work. But um, I'm going to nod, nod if you know what we're talking about. We are going to be talking about the the truly wonderful um, shipwreck, the Vasa. I'm very excited because I've just come back from three days in Stockholm where I, I have been part of a big project studying the Vasa ship. So this whole episode is going to be dedicated to that, isn't it, Sam? Yes, with a bit of extra shipwrecky stuff around it. Um, I think the point to start off with here is that shipwrecks like the Vasa. Should we just tell everyone what happened? So the Vasa was one of the biggest, most important warships of the early 17th century. It started being built in 1626, I think it was. It was twin-decked, so it had guns on, on both decks. It was the most powerful warship of its time 
for 40 minutes. <laughs> because 1,300 metres out of Stockholm Harbour on the 10th of August, 1628, it keeled over and sank to the bottom of the sea. Yeah. And it was then found, it was relocated in the 1950s, and then it was dredged up in 1961, largely intact. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they that they they claim at the Vasa is while the Mary Rose is an amazing find, we have about a third of the ship that survives, whereas the Vasa is over 90% complete. And in 1988, they built a purpose-built museum island in Stockholm, and it's there, and it is absolutely amazing as a ship just to give you some some sort of sense of quite how impressive this is and this will probably mean much more to you than it does to me as a maritime historian the size of it it was in terms of tons it was it was 1210 tons uh the length of it was 69 meters or 226 feet um height it was about 52.5 meters high it's draft 4.8 metres. It had over 1,200 square metres of sails. Crew, it had 145 sailors, 300 soldiers, and it had an impressive 64 guns to it. And I think that, to be honest, it was probably the guns that led to it sinking. I suppose the point here about the shipwrecks like this is that they are... There are very few of them that are exactly like this, but there are a, in one respect, there are none. In that it was it was a maiden voyage captured in time. Yes. One of the great things about what happened with the Vassar is they know that everything was in use at that time, yep. at the exact moment. So there aren't layers and layers of history in different periods. You've got to kind of wade through. So when the Mary Rose went down, she was already 30 or 40 years old. Yes. I don't know off the top of my head, but she'd already been around for quite right. a long time. And you've got ships like the Royal George who went down in the 1780s. But this one, it it had not been on another voyage. This was the only voyage. Everything had been brought on new. Yeah. Um, perhaps there were sort of trinkets in people's pockets which they'd had favourites over periods of time but most of the stuff there was actually new and it was all in use at that time there was not old stuff there not being used yep. I mean it really is this kind of this captured moment in time when often that's bandied around and it's not necessarily the case Yes and that's what's extraordinary about it it is a it was full of not only people so we've got about 11 skeletons uh, so you can you know who was on it uh, but it's also full of stuff you know, one of the most interesting things is a is a sailor's box, like a trunk. It's basically full of all the things he would have had on his voyage with a, a hat right on the top. There are board games, there are cannonballs, there are all sorts of fragments of clothing, all sorts of things. So what this enables you to do is to reconstruct the everyday life of early 17th century Sweden at sea. Yes, I mean, it's it's really good for us, particularly because, yes, you can do the history of cannons and you can do the history of hulls and you can do the history of whatever else you might do, which is straightforward and obvious, but um, it's it's wonderful for us because we can tear it apart in an unexpected way because there's so much fantastic stuff. There's so fantastic much fantastic stuff. Like, stuff. Yeah. Absolutely so much fantastic stuff. Now, the project that I'm involved in is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is a funding council in the United Kingdom. And it's part of a big project called the Gendered Interpretations of the Vassar Museum and also the Victorian Albert Museum. So the idea is that what we are doing is we are working with these two Beacon International Museums to have a look at how you think about their collections, their objects, their exhibitions from the perspective of gender. 
So, for example, we mean male, female. We mean masculinity and femininity. We also mean about sexualities and identity. So it's something that that's quite fluid. And I've been working with a team from the University of Western Australia, Sue Broomhall and Jacqueline Van Ghent, as well as colleagues at Lund University, so the wonderful Svante Norhem and Nadine Ackerman at Leiden University, along with colleagues at the VASA and also at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And as part of this team, we've come up with a new methodology for gendering objects. So effectively, to look at objects in terms of male and female characteristics. We started with gloves, and you have heard tons about gloves from us in the past. But what we've done is working with both the museums, the Vassa and the Victoria and Albert Museum, we have identified a series of objects that then we are going to do this form of interpretation on. And then what that's going to do is that's going to be the base research that is then going to feed out in different strategies of interpretation throughout the museum. So in terms of the collections, videos, podcasts, education, uh, exhibitions, all that kind of thing is going to be uh, stuff that we're working on. And so at the VASA, what we had was a two-day workshop that involved participants presenting their research and then the wonderful colleagues at the VASA Museum from all these different departments, from the director of research to uh, people who were guiding the tours to the educational people to marketing, were all involved in how our research fed through the museum. So it's, it's a really amazing enterprise. Is there an example? There are many examples. One of the most extraordinary things was a pair of trousers that had turned into a dress. <laughs> so what happened was when the Vasa went down, the shreds of fabric just sort of went everywhere, all over the all over the cliff, all over the, the boat. So imagine, remember when we talked about puzzle women? Yes. And puzzle women, you had all these sort of little bits of shredded documents and then the puzzle women put them all back together. And this was from East Germany. This was from East Germany and the Stasi. But imagine that in terms of fabric... So you've basically got the you've basically got items of clothing that have just fallen apart, and little threads of cotton of silk are dotted all around the ship. So they decayed. They fe- they've they've come they apart fell, because of they fell because they of the fell decay. apart. And so what? There's this amazing uh, scholar called Anna uh, Silvilov. Uh, who spent 18 years training as a seamstress, mm-hmm. and now she is in post at the Vasa looking at all their fabrics, and she has identified what they thought at one time was a pair of trousers and has reinterpreted it as a dress because there is a skeleton. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That they have identified as female, and they, they call her Beata, as the in the in the museum, and she was found with a shoe on, and the shoe was very poorly repaired. It was a fairly cheap shoe, so they can identify her as somebody who is of fairly low social standing. Connected to the back of the skeleton 
is a sort of um, back part of what looks like a dress. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I couldn't even start to think about this. This is somebody who's spent 18 years cutting cloth, knows how material works, knows how stitch stitches work. And so she's interpreted this back piece as a back piece to the dress. She's then gone through all the collections of fragments of material and pieced them all together by colour, by by the type of material they are. And then she, there's this sort of long piece that survives, which has traditionally been interpreted as trousers, but is in fact too long, and it's cut the right the wrong way. And so basically she spent a couple of years working on this, putting it all together. And she describes this process as, you'll love this, this process as slow looking. <laughs> so it's when, it's when you're... It's when you're, uh, when you're I'd be terrible at that. I would be, I would, I'm so impatient to be able to do that. I love the idea of just sitting there and, and looking at it and thinking about it. But this idea of slow looking in order to sort of piece everything together. But it's absolutely phenomenal. So how do you take... How do you start looking at the collection from the perspective of gender? I mean, you've obviously got clothing that belonged to a woman there, so you've got a dress, um, which immediately starts you thinking about this is not just men who are on the ship. The ship itself is gendered. So as it went out of the harbour on that fateful day in August 1628, it was not just men who were on it, but it was also many women you know, who were often the, the wives and daughters who were going out and apparently they were going to sort of stop off at an island out in the middle of the of the ocean out in the middle of the bay and then the the ship would continue on but before that happened the ship went over and so they're all preserved in there and i think we've got about two or three skeletons of women uh, there's one skeleton that has changed sex twice because archaeologists can't decide whether it's male or female and i think at first they thought it was male and then Osteoarchaeologists looked at the, the sort of, I suppose the hip bone and the pelvis is one of the ways in which you determine the sex of a skeleton and then, you know, and then reassigned it to a female gender. So the, from an unexpected point of view here, you've got, it is, it's part of the history of trousers. Yes. It's part of the history of dresses. Yes. It's part of the history of skeletons, but people trying to interpret um, material from disaster sites yes. that happened a, lot, a long time ago. So just by you know coming up with those ideas, we can see there are various different ways you can you can look at it, and those and that single single example itself can fit into so many different parts yes, of absolutely. history, can't it? Absolutely. I mean, also we talked in the past about hats. Yeah, it made we've me done think something of that. about hats. Yeah. So there was a. I have a brilliant postdoc the, working on this yeah, on. called Kit Hayam, mm -hmm. and he's worked on a on. The wool hats that we were that we were talking about that everyone wore, and you know if you pull that apart, you can sort of see women involved in the wool trade, women you know people involved in the way in which they're made. But also, there's a really interesting history connected with gender that is about when and where you wear these hats. Now, there's, there are sumptuary laws that say all men should wear these hats, and that women should not wear these hats. But then if you have a look through the court records, there are examples of women who are brought to court for wearing these male hats. And how do you interpret that? You know, you've obviously got somebody who is who is defying sumptuary laws. Now, why are they doing that? Are they doing that because they want to 
appear like a man because they basically want to go undercover of being male to engage in some kind of activity? Do they inwardly feel male? And that wearing a hat is something that, you know, is important for their, their, their identity. And I think this is something that's very central to the way in which museums become inclusive and the way in which museums present objects. Now, an object there can be interpreted by men, it can be interpreted by women, but it can also be interpreted by people of different sexualities, different different um, identities. And certainly, you know, it's, it, those kinds of open possibilities allow for everyone to find their space and interpretation within a museum setting. And I think that's fundamentally important because museums are basically out there as sort of these these enormous sort of bodies with such sort of social power. And I think they have a very important educative role to play. What about the um, when you went there? I actually haven't been to the Russell Museum, but I'd love to go. Can you talk quickly about the carvings on the ship? Because oh. I happen to know that yes. they that it's completely covered in carvings, yes. isn't it? And there are what, over 700 different carvings, yes. including Roman emperors, which is exciting. Yes. We're talking about the Romans next. Yes. We should come back to this. Figures from the Bible, classical mythology and Gothic heroes. Yes. Interesting. Um, recent research has shown the background colour was red, the carvings bright and multicoloured. Yes. So although the ship now is, um, it's, a, it's a dull woody brown colour, isn't it? Yeah. It actually, it, it, is, it, it fits into the history of colour. Um, yep, it so does. it would have been vivid. We talked a little bit about this um, before in terms of the west front of Exeter Cathedral, yes. which is this magnificent medieval carved, um, carved screen. Yep. On the front of it, but that yep. used to be coloured in, and there were there were churches yes. all over the country, and there would be there would be coloured, and it was all taken yes. apart during the Reformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so this is another example of it. So it wasn't this colour wasn't destroyed, but it's just been removed by time. But you've got to bear it in mind when you go and see it. Yeah. So yeah, what were the carvings like? Amazing. I mean, the the I it, I I'm almost speechless because when you walk through the front doors of it, and there are two, you go through, you continually go through several sets of doors because they need to keep the temperature within yeah. the museum a certain at a certain degree in order to preserve it um but it is just breathtaking as you walk in the first thing you meet is the carving of the vassa lion so the lion we've talked about the vassa lion before this is the sort of royal emblem which is right on the prow of the boat and then on every single side of it it is just covered mm. with these carvings, some of which are, you know, are are sort of classical and have a lot of meaning. Some of them are quite humorous. Yeah. So there is just below the toilet, there is a, a Polish soldier sort of bent bent down. So as you go to the toilet and relieve yourself, you're relieving yourself upon upon him. So that's quite humorous. Along and that's the, quite important if you're Swedish. Yes, that's, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. So it makes <laughs> it makes a neighbouring angst a lot going of sense. on there. So I think on on one level there are carvers having quite a bit of fun with it, um, but also there are you know there were obviously prescriptions for what people wanted. One of the interesting things and one of the one of the studies that people are concentrating on, um, Anna Maria Forsberg, uh, who's one of the new uh, people in the research team there, brilliant brilliant historian, is working on the female sculptures on the ship, and there are about eleven. Of female sculptures on the back of it, um, and some some sculptures with you know men with breasts and women with beards. So there are all, all sorts of 
gender implications there. They often are with maritime things, yes. maritime mythology and stuff. You can see it in the mermen, the mermaids. Yes, yes. Um, if you're interested in that, just go to the um, Royal Naval Museum in Portsmouth. They've got an amazing collection of figureheads and also in Greenwich. Yeah. Um, actually, while we're thinking about that, one of the one of the great things about the Vasa is the surviving carving. Yep. So we know that the early 17th century ships in England were as equally ela- ornamented and elaborate, yes. but there are none that survive. Right. So the only way we can see them are in paintings. Um, there are a couple of magnificent ones to give you a sense of just how detailed it were. With the one exception is the ceiling of the Queen's House in Greenwich, which was made by the same people that did the carvings on the back of James I's ship. So Brilliant. if you want to know what a ship looks like from that period, um, early 1600s, go and look at the ceilings of the Queen's House in Greenwich. It's one of my favourite things to do. Or jump on a plane and go to Stockholm. <laughs> yes, well, you can do that. Go and see a real one. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it's well worth going to see. One of the most extraordinary things, you probably know all about cannonballs at sea. One of the most extraordinary things was the cannonballs. In the evening on the last day, we did uh, we had a series of public talks and people were invited along. Fantastic wine and canapes. But we also had three pop-up stations so that members of the public could come along and see some of the objects that we were studying. Cannonballs. And pays. then talk. And there were cannonballs <laughs> there. Cannonballs. There were no no no. That's a terrible joke, Willis. Um but there were there was Nine Men's Morris, which yeah. of course you know all about from our book on the Vikings, Vikings. and games. Um there was the the dress, the trousers that turned into a dress. So you saw the fragments there yeah. and you were able to talk to the curator about that. But also four different cannonballs. I Who knew that cannonball? there were so many different kinds of cannonballs? Cannonballs that came apart. Oh, I see. So you fly, you fly, you, you put them in yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they come apart and then they, it's two halves with a chain. And the idea is not to simply destroy the vessel but is to, these were aimed at just slashing the sails mm-hmm. so that they couldn't move. So you capture the, you capture the ship. Yeah. Interesting. One of the, the points about the Vasa that makes it different from any other ship in the period, though, is that most other ships, you go to the Mary Rose, for example, yep. I know it's a generation or so before, but they have an enormous amount of different types of cannon. You've got cannon, demi-cannon, cartoas, sakers, minions, all sorts of things. Yes. Um, but on the Vasa, they had 48... 24-pounder cannon. Yep. And that standardisation was unique at the time. And yep. when you actually, if you're interested in studying the changes in naval history that happened in this period, it was all happened in the Baltic. They invented the line of battle. They invented the standardisation of the ship. Everything that we have that kind of led us to the British being a very powerful um, nation was all tried and tested in the Baltic by the Baltic nations. Yeah, so there's, there is an interesting history of kind of standardisation and um, borrowing ideas. I should think there's a fair bit of spying. I imagine, there, I imagine there would be. And, and the Vassar ship was built by, part built by a Dutchman. It was also part built oh. by an Englishman yes. called Ian Bulmer. Um, yeah, so uh, you've got different nations all working together. It's, um, that's why I think the um, analysis of the carvings is going to be so good because it's going to be very clear evidence, I think, of international collaboration. Yes. Um, but also of, of kind of shared maritime themes. So we might get some kind of sense of what, what, what these guys shared as well as what made Absolutely. them different. Well, as research progresses, we should come back and tell you all about it. Absolutely. We will do that. We will, um, we will repeat, we will repeat uh, this thing on the Vassa and find out how things are going on.
Excellent. I mean, one thing I particularly do like about it, though, just going to finish off, is um, the sense of immediate tragedy. Um, yes. It, what made me think about it, I took uh, my lovely dog for a walk this morning and he started shivering. And I'd been reading something about symptoms of shock. Yes. One of which is to shiver and to shake. But that made me think about the Vasa. So one of the extraordinary things about ships is when they sink in public like this, they're often, it goes down, they go down very, very quickly. It's not a slow process. So the yes. Vasa would have just gone. She would have absolutely yes. gone, which makes it fundamentally shocking for everyone watching. We know the Vasa was... Her, this maiden voyage was being viewed by thousands and thousands of people. So one moment she was there, and then the next she simply was not there. Yeah. And then you, understanding the impact of that, I think, is a really interesting way of getting into it. It's essentially PTSD. Yes. Um, the immediate one when I was thinking about it today was the Challenger, um, the, the American, American spaceship in 1986. Yes. That took off on yes. its voyage yes, and yes, it yes. exploded in front yes. of millions of people watching it. Yes. And there was a profound shock there. And it'd be really interesting to see how people reacted to that in the press, how people on yes. the ground reacted yes, yes, to yes. that as well. Gustavus Adolphus is very cross. Very cross. But I think one of the other interesting things is that there was a time difference between the people who are witnessing the event and the people who are actually part yes. of it. So the yes. people who are part of it know there's something wrong before everyone else realises yes. there's something yes. wrong. And only, you know, so how did they notice it? Was it the angle of the ship? Was it screaming? Was it splashing yeah. as people went overboard? I was surprised there were only 11 skeletons. Yes. So there were over 100 people on board. Yes. So that's not very many compared to... So maybe people got out. Compared to the Mary Rose. Yes. Um, where, where an enormous amount of people died because they were trapped below decks and they yes. had this anti-boarding netting and they, they just couldn't get out and there weren't enough escape routes, essentially. Yep. Yep. So th there are lots of people trapped down ladders, but the Vasa, it seems that everyone got out. And I reckon that's because they were all on deck. Yes, um, and waving I, goodbye, maybe. Waving goodbye, yes. and that's the reason it sank. Yes. So w one of the reasons it sank is that it was very tender. It moved around a lot, yep. um, which means it wasn't ballasted properly. Yes. There's, a, there's an assumption it's to do with the gun ports being too close to the water, which is not true. In fact, the Vasa's gun ports are the same height above the waterline as HMS Victories. So that was built 140 years later, and that survived quite happily. Um, so anyway, so but basically they got the weight wrong, yep. and there are loads of people on the ship, but they're all on decks, so they're waving, and that means the height needs to be low down to stop yep. the ship flipping, but it's yep. all up high, so it's all up high, and so I reckon the ship went, and I reckon that's why most of them got off, and the handful of few who were not on deck, they, they were the ones that died. That's yep. where we got the skeletons, because yeah, yeah, yeah. the ship went down, Fills up with water, eventually fills up with silt and clay. Yes. And that's what traps them. What was fascinating was the, the story of how it was brought up. Yeah. Um, in the it was discovered in the fifties and then in the and then in the six, early sixties it was brought up. So by sixty one it was up. And that is a story about, you know, these sort of maverick macho, you know, underwater adventurers. But there is an earlier story about attempts to go down and salvage it. Which the Englishman is, was the first one. Which is mid-17th century. Yeah. And they have a, what is like a diving bell. It's mm -hmm. like, imagine like a big, um, imagine like a big um, metal bell and they would lower it and there was just about enough uh, oxygen in it for about 30 minutes for sailors or, or divers with, in leather, to go down and sort of try and sort of find their way about. Yeah. But think about how difficult that must have been and how cold. It was so cold in the waters in Stockholm Harbour that they could only be there for 15 minutes before they came back up. Wow. 
You can't yeah. get much done it's, in 15 I mean, minutes underwater. No, no. And, and but what they did manage to do is get it upright. Yes. So one of yes. the first things they, they managed to do is get it upright, and that's why so much of it is well-preserved. When they literally, it just, it was sitting on the bottom of, of, of the Baltic. Yes. You know, and, and up it yeah. came, up it came virtually. So, um, yeah, that, that was an Englishman who managed to do that as well. So Excellent. a bit more international collaboration. But going back to my um, post Traumatic shock thing. Yes, it's all to do. With, it's, it's essentially to do with the history of disappearance and sleight of hand as well, and how profoundly impactful that can be. So, if you're just thinking about the Vasa, just consider watching it. Do to do. You're having a nice time. So you're watching this ship sailing along. Now, this is what would happen. Someone, possibly a child, turned around to have a chat with his mum. Hello, mum. Can I have a bag of sweets or whatever it might have been in 1620 Sweden? Chat, 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 chat. Turn back around. Ship's gone. Boom! It's gone. Yes. It's unbelievable. Yes. And you think of how massive these things are, um, how long they are, how tall they are. They take up an enormous amount of three-dimensional yes. space, these yes. ships. It's not just yes. a hull. Oh. They're extraordinary things. It would have just vanished. Totally. So, yeah, there's, um, there's a kind of a troubling history of, 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 of vanishing and tragedy there as well. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, James? Have you got any other, any other things that you saw there that you liked particularly? I was very impressed by... The museum the, itself, sorry, I've just thought, is, is completely extraordinary. The museum itself is extraordinary, and I was really impressed by some of the educational facilities. So they've got a, an area for, for kids and also adults, which is basically uh, a mock-up of just below deck. And you go in it, and there is the most brilliant tour guide and educational person who talks you, you through it all. And you really get to experience the noise, the sounds of what life on board ship would have been, you know, some of the objects that they would have had. And it's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant space. And what was fantastic about it was the way in which they, the, the person running that workshop had been along and part of the sort of broader workshop and was already feeding into the educational programme research that we'd got, you know, within literally half an hour of having heard it. So it's absolutely superb. No, I mean, it's... Um, I think one of the things that's most spectacular about it is the is the museum itself, um, and I think you know the situation of it on an on an island, purpose built. Um, it's six stories high. Um, the The museum is incredibly well run, and because it is a essentially a one object museum, it's a brilliant museum to work with. Um, they're very um, they're very up on their gender. So a couple of years ago, they opened an exhibit called Women of the Vassa. And the idea with Women of the Vassa was that they wanted to show a female story of, a, of what effectively is a very male ship. And so there you have, they take four different women. Beata, who we talked about, the, the woman with the dress who was on it, is just a sort of an ordinary woman. But then there are women who are involved in the provisioning of the ship there are women who are involved in the timber industry so actually in shipbuilding and you get a sort of really balanced uh, sense of you know the gendered nature of this very male ship one of the most interesting ways of looking at histories of tragedies like this is who gets the blame there's always a political angle to it and um, Gustavus gets shouted at quite a lot it was his fault apparently he tried to change the design but we now know that's not true and the ship is pretty much designed exactly as we would expect it to be designed it's a classic example of a shipping in the 1620s so it's much more to do with um, ship handling and with with um, with with control of the weight 
and the ballast. But there's a mystery there. We will definitely find out more about it uh, with some of this magnificent research which you and your team are doing. I yes. can't wait to hear more. And we more. have eyewitness accounts Ooh. of it as well. So um, we have the eyewitness accounts. Um, there's a letter uh, to the king from the Council of the Realm that describes it. When the ship left the shelter of, of uh, Tegelviken, in other words, a small harbour, a stronger wind entered the sails and she immediately began to keel over hard to the lee side. She righted herself slightly again until she approached Beckholmen, where she heeled over and water gushed in through the gun ports until she slowly went to the bottom, under sail, pennants and all. So you've got eyewitness accounts there of it sinking. Yeah. By the time I came up, said the um, Admiral Johnson, who'd been inspecting her guns, who also survived, by the time I came up from the lower deck, the water had risen so high that the staircase had become loose and it was only with great difficulty that I climbed out. So he escaped and others were less fortunate and an estimated 50 crew members sank with the ship to their watery grave. But apparently we only have... And have 11 skeletons. Mm. So, of a crew of about, what did we say that there were going to be on? Like 400, so. 450 In total, with but soldiers? Not, not on that day. Not on that day. No. Um, so, you know, I imagine, you know, a third perished. Well, let's come back and revisit this when we've got some more exciting, unexpected topics we can talk about in relation to the Barca. Excellent. That was enormously good fun. And um, thank you all very much for listening. Um, oh, I wanted to just go through a few of. Your Twitter. Some of you got in touch with on Twitter because we asked you all to suggest different topics that we could do. We've got a lovely one from at Oz Penguin here. Uh, he suggests taxidermy, herbaria, lepidoptery, um, all these sort of collection type activities that lead via Joseph Banks to museums. I think those are wonderful, wonderful ideas. Laura Hardy wanted us to study the history of the pub. She was actually tweeting on her birthday. So happy belated birthday, Laura. Um, at Rich HL, he wants to do the history of the belly button. <laughs> I, I'm well into that. That's fantastic. Excellent. Creation myths, the tension between sexual shame and desire, mapping the centre of the universe, rites of passage and blue fluff. Mapping the centre of the universe, I wrote a little bit about something similar to that in the chapter on holes in our book. Oh, you did, um, yes. Because there, is an actual, there are actual maps of the underworld and my take on doing the history of holes was to look at the holes that people thought existed and took you down, the entrances to the yes. underworld. Excellent. Um, at MZ, skin tattoos, books, medieval manuscripts, anthropomo- anthropodermic, my God, what does this mean? Anthropodermic bibliopigy, e.g. Burke and Hare. I think that means body sealing. From Luna Pixie. Yes. Uh, the history of cutlery, <laughs> apple pie, <laughs> love that, crowns, lanterns, Patchouli, patchouli oil, brilliant, and sheds. Well, we should do sheds because we're sitting Definitely in Definitely we should do sheds. We are sitting in my shed as we speak. Um, yes. So out of all of today, uh, I'd like to do the history of belly button, I'd like to do the history of sheds, and I'd like to do the history of shivering, having mentioned oh. that in relation to shock and my Ken- shivery dog. Kenny Bear. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Bear wants us to do koalas, bags, chocolate, trees, trains, and clouds. We've done clouds. We've done clouds in our book. We did we? clouds in our book. Um, have we, we done a podcast on clouds? I don't know. So. Maybe get back to that. Yes. Um, tattoos. Trees I love. Again. There's a bit of tattoos in Romans. Baby, shoes. Oh, we should do shoes for definite. Okay, we can do shoes. I want to do shoes for Andy Gordon. Hello, Andy. 
well, those Richard all, Lyle. All great ideas. Thank you so much for getting in touch with them. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Unexpected Odd. You can. And if you want to find out what we're doing, we've got uh, a new series of books coming up. We've got our big book. We've got our live shows. Do come and see us live. You can find out everything about it and more. Um, we're going to be uh, also getting some mini articles and stuff we online. Are. And if you want a signed copy of our book, yes. you can buy it from our website. Historiesofthunexpected.com and, and we will sign it for you with whatever you wish us to write on it. Well, within, you know, obviously within limits. <laughs> yes. I'd like to know what those limits are, though. Yes. I'm that kind of well, Tell I, me what the could, limits are. We could pen you a poem, uh, <laughs> if you wished. Right. Do a little doodle. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, guys. Um, we love you all. Bye-bye. Bye.